Hello, welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. For today's episode, I spoke with Spencer Greenberg. Spencer is an entrepreneur and mathematician who founded SparkWave, which is a company that creates software designed to help solve problems in the world using social science, ranging from apps designed to help with depression and anxiety to technology for accelerating and improving social science research. Spencer also founded clearerthinking.org, which offers free tools and training programs used by over 200,000 people, which are designed to help you improve your decision-making, increase positive behaviors, and reduce cognitive biases. Spencer has a PhD in applied math from NYU with a specialty in machine learning, and his work has been featured in a bunch of publications like the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and Lifehacker. And he was too modest to mention it in the bio he sent me, but Spencer also co-authored a column in the New York Times on his research with the economist Seth Stevens Davidowitz that I'll link to in the show notes. I've met Spencer a few times in person, and I was really excited to speak with him because I'm fascinated by the question of how outsiders can help reform social science. Now, I'm using the term outsider in a bit of a loose way here because Spencer does have a PhD and he does work directly with social scientists themselves, as he'll explain in the podcast. But until fairly recently, there were only very narrow paths available to those who wanted to work in social science or to help improve it. And I think everyone is going to benefit from this great opening up of the general scene that's unfolded, which has ranged from the rise of sort of debunky blogger types to entrepreneurs like Spencer, who do research in somewhat non-traditional ways. So that was part of our conversation, but we also talked a lot about some of the interesting data Spencer and his colleagues have generated, including on the differences between men and women when it comes to personality and between liberals and conservatives when it comes to so-called intrinsic values. Spencer is also a bit less skeptical of power posing than I am, so we talked about that too. I don't know. I've, I, uh, I got to think about that more, but he makes some, some pretty fair points. I'm really happy with this interview, but I do think you'll get a bit more out of it if you spend some time playing around with the tools Spencer and his team have built. I'll include some links in the show notes, but clearerthinking.org in particular has some fascinating stuff on it that's worth checking out. As always, I welcome any and all questions and comments and hate mail you have. You can reach me at singleminded at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and share this episode and the others in my catalog, and to check out my newsletter, which is at jessesingle.substack.com. I mentioned this in a recent newsletter, but I'm also moderating a panel on campus free speech stuff at the Heterodox Academy annual conference on Friday, June 21st in Manhattan. If you're at the conference, definitely uh, feel free to stop by and say hi. Okay, that's it. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Spencer Greenberg. So Spencer, tell tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what you do. So my name is Spencer Greenberg, uh, and I started a company called SparkWave, and we look for ways to use social science to try to make the world better by building new software products that apply social science and also building technology to try to accelerate social science to make it go faster and make it cheaper and more robust. And you're doing this just from sort of uh, the comfort of your own company. You're sort of do you think it's fair to say like parallel to academia, but outside it? How, how do you position yourself like relative to mainstream academia where, you know, research is traditionally produced? That's exactly right. We're parallel to it. We do work with academics on some projects or we'll, we'll partner with them, which has been very fruitful. But yes, we're outside of it and we really have a different goal than academia. Um, very often academia is looking to produce novel insights about things. And for us, we're really looking to find ways to help people using social science and get it out in the world and, and really apply it. And, and your background is in mathematics, right? 
Yeah, so I have my PhD in mathematics. I actually specialize in machine learning. So basically the study of how to make predictions using algorithms. But uh, social science is really my passion and something I've been working on for now quite a number of years and looking for ways sort of to use the inter intersection between technology and social science. You know, to, to listeners who sort of aren't, don't follow this work closely, you're doing this at an important time because within social science and particularly psychology, there's this replication crisis where people are raising all sorts of questions about the the quality of the work and a lot of like really important findings are, are being toppled. Did that sort of inspire you to go into this or was that just sort of a happy coincidence that you're doing it at a time when the science needs some degree of reformation? Uh, you know, it, I, I do find that topic very important and also it was somewhat influential for me because as someone who wants to f try to find ways to help people with social science, it's absolutely critical that the results are reliable. And, you know, if you're building a you know, foundation out of sand, then that's going to be a really, really big problem. And uh, so one of the things that we do is in building technology for social science, we want to see if we can help researchers make it more robust. Uh, because I think something that people don't realize is that if you ask people to use better practices, but those better practices take more money, more time, et cetera, people just aren't going to be able to apply them very well because they don't have more time. They don't have more money. Everyone's already, you know, using all of their time to try to get published in top journals and already spending all of their grant money. So where is that going to come from? And so one thesis we have is that if we give people better technology that makes it faster, cheaper, easier, uh, both to conduct research, but also to apply good practices, then we might be able to help make a difference that way. Right. And, and the classic example of this, I think, is sort of uh, the question of sample size and whether you use representative samples, because you could you could tell social psychologists all day, you know, this study should have a thousand people, a diverse sample from across the U.S., but the 40 people they have available to put in an experiment right now are their undergrads in the classroom already right there. And it's like there's real cost associated with doing better and more rigorous science, right? Exactly. And that's a really clear cut example because it's just a straight up cost to recruiting more people. And that actually uh, speaks to one of the projects we have called Positly, where we're building a new recruitment platform to recruit for scientific studies and other kinds of studies, trying to make it really easy to get the sample you need at the lowest cost. Um, because I believe that it's very hard to do good science with small sample sizes. Um, but, you know, that's not the only example. There are, a lot, there are a whole bunch of other ways I think you can help support good practices, do better technology. Um, for example, it's really nice if researchers release their data so that both others can benefit from it by finding new insights from it, but also so that people can check each other's work and it's more accountable. But one thing that happens today is that it's a whole bunch of extra effort to get your data out there, right? So you've already done your work and it's like, do you really want to spend a whole bunch of extra hours now to do that? Whereas if we provide a tool that, that you want to upload your data anyway, because we're going to help you get answers to your questions uh, about your study, then it would be very easy to add an extra functionality that says, hey, do you want to just make this data available to everyone? Check a box, right? And so we want to do as many things like that as we can, where we just make the, the right thing to do much, much easier and not require extra work, extra effort. Behavioral economics is this whole area that's shown that in some cases, pretty small nudges or changes to people's sort of work or home environment, you can get pretty big behavior changes out of that. Is that, is that sort of what you're talking about here, where if you just or make the architecture of how scientists do their job a little bit different, you can promote better practices? That's right. And sometimes it's just making the, the right thing really easy. So it's just making it, you know, so just reducing the work. Other times it could be nudging in a certain direction where you say, hey, you know what, now that you've produced this cool data, why don't you make it available to researchers? Maybe we can even delay it for you. We can release it in 12 months so that nobody else can go, you know, jump ahead of you and do the paper you want to do. 
but eventually people will benefit from it. So yeah, things like that. So in addition to that, you know, building these tools, you guys also are sort of uh, doing original research. I mean, I was playing around with your uh, intrinsic values uh, tool earlier today. Mm -hmm. Could you tell people a little bit about that? Yeah. So we do tons of our own studies all the time. And that's because we are constantly looking for ways we can build things that will help people. Um, some of them free tools, some of them paid products. And yeah, so the intrinsic values uh, research is a line of research that says, if you think about what people really care about fundamentally, it's sort of a limited set of things. Almost everything that we kind of say we care about, it's really because we're trying to get something else out of it, right? So you think about money, you know, a lot of people seek money, but if you couldn't do anything else with money, you wouldn't want it, it would just be a bunch of paper. So the question we ask is, what are the intrinsic values people have? What are the things they value fundamentally for their own sake that they would continue valuing even if there were no other consequences of getting that thing? And that is a more limited set. We've been able to find about 22 different intrinsic values that people have. And we developed this test to help people figure out their own intrinsic values with the goal that, uh, of saying, well, look, if you're trying to achieve the things that you really care about in your life, you first have to know what those things are that you really care about. That's a really helpful step. And we want to make that easier for people. Right. Okay. So so intrinsic values are, are things that are just, you derive meaning from in and of themselves, not because you can sort of trade them for something else or because they lead you somewhere else. And exactly. when we were sort of planning this episode, you said you found, as have other researchers, that liberals and conservatives have pretty different intrinsic values, right? Or, or how different are they exactly? Yeah, there's some, we found that there are some differences in their intrinsic values. And, uh, and, and I think those are, are pretty important for understanding liberals and conservatives, but they don't explain everything, everything about those differences. Uh, so just to give an example, we found in our research that conservatives tend to have more spiritual intrinsic values. Uh, of course, there are liberals who are spiritual, but just you know, talking about on average, we also found that conservatives in the US tend to have more purity forms of, of intrinsic values that have to do with kind of not doing acts that are sort of considered impure, which could vary culturally what is considered impure. Right. And and so that and that would tie into sort of the idea of conservatives often being more sensitive to disgust impulses. Right. Um, yeah. So that, that I think ties into that research because it's, it's believed by many people that the sort of purity morality we have is related to sort of our our sense of disgust um, and that there, those are two you know, kind of connected concepts in the brain. Right. And and when I was going through this tool, it reminded me of the research of the NYU um, he's a social psychologist, he's in the business school now, Jonathan Haidt, who has this famous theory that we all have different moral foundations and one of them is, is purity. How does this research on intrinsic values sort of map onto what he did or is it an extension of it or different or what? Great question. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, of Jonathan Haidt and his moral foundations theory says that is, his theory is really looking for sort of innate kind of modular foundations for morality. And I think this is very much related to our project, but, but different from it, because we're trying to catalog all the things that people say that they fundamentally care about. And morality is kind of a subset of things that fundamentally, people fundamentally care about. So an example of something that's not usually considered moral that people fundamentally care about is their own pleasure, right? So most people wouldn't say that's a moral issue to maximize your own pleasure, right? They, that's sort of outside of the realm of morality, but it's something people really, really care about. Um, so yeah, there's crossover, but it's not exactly the same thing. And I think in a way we're looking at a much broader thing and just saying, we're not passing, we're not passing any value, any, you know, judgment on what people care about. We're just trying to catalog what they say they care about. When I was sort of going through the tool earlier, I got the sense that, well, you tell me, do you think for a lot of people, they've never really taken the time to sit down and explicitly lay out 
uh, sort of these are my intrinsic values and goals. Exactly. Yeah, I think most people haven't done that. So that's why. So we have a project called ClearThinking.org where we release these free tools and tests to help people understand themselves, make better decisions. And so this is our one of our most recent ones, this intrinsic values test. Um, where yeah, you can go on and and uh, try. It will help you reflect on what you really really care about. And yeah, I think most people have not gone through this exercise. So it's useful to do when you're kind of setting your life goals. Did any of the results from the intrinsic values research you did sort of jump out or, or surprise you in particular? Well, I think the thing I was most surprised at is just how many things people say they care about. So um, we found 22 categories of things in our research, but but actually that really encompasses, I would say, well over 100 different specific things. So for example, we, one of our categories is nature, but there's a bunch that falls under that, whether it's kind of protecting you know, the wilderness or... Uh, you know, making sure animals don't go, animal species don't go extinct, et cetera. So if you really dig down to kind of very specific statement level, you find tons of these different things that people say they fundamentally care about. So the other uh, sort of big subject you dived into is um, <laughs> fairly controversial, which is gender and personality, right? Yeah. So I should say we, yeah, we dive into a lot of topics. So we have about 22 uh, free tools now you can do on our website covering all different topics. But yeah, one uh, a big project we did was on gender and personality, and we had that tool uh, slated to, to launch really shortly. Uh, where basically you, I think it was something like 15 different studies we ran on that question, um, and we got really interested in gender and personality because people seem to totally disagree about what's true, and it's so politicized that it seems like it's hard for people to kind of uh, really take an objective look at it. So we want we really want to say, well, what does the empirical data say? About the about the relationship between personality and gender, and yeah, it took us something like fifteen different studies to get to the bottom of it. Um, and you know, there's one side that says, "Well, men are from Mars, women are from Venus; they're totally different." And a lot of people believe that. Uh, on the other hand, there are people that say, "No, no, no, men and women are fundamentally the same, and if you think they're not, then you know you're probably exhibiting bias." And so we kind of we found some pretty interesting conclusions there. I'm going to give re, uh, listeners five ten seconds now. If I ask you. Whoever you are listening to this, what do you think the biggest divide in personality is between men and women? Just take a few moments, uh, come up with an answer in your head, and then Spencer, I'll ask you to reveal the, the biggest difference. Yeah, I love that you asked that question. That's great. Okay, Spencer, go for it. Right. So, well, the first thing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what we found is the strongest personality difference between men and women. But first, I just want to tell you how big it is, because I think this can be surprising to a lot of people, is that it's... The single biggest difference in personality we found after studying literally something like 700 different questions you could ask men and women uh, it was just not that big. It's a kind of a moderate sized difference. And it is on the trait we call sex focused. And so that involves things like if you meet an attractive person, do you have sexual thoughts? And we found that men, uh, you know, had a moderately higher on this trait than women. And then we actually found 17 other traits on which men and women differed, but they were all even smaller than this. And so the way we kind of describe our results is there we were able to find about 18 differences between men and women, but none of them were large. Um, and I think this I, I, I think that our data pretty strongly says that the men are from Mars, women are from Venus view is just wrong. It's just not, you know, it's just at odds with the empirical data, at least in the United States, which is where we focused our research. I do feel like effect sizes in this sort of thing can be sort of tricky to grasp intuitively. If like me, you are you're bad at math, but basically the way to look at it is 
so if you knew someone's score on the on the sex question, how accurate would you be just from that alone and be, being able to say this is probably a man or probably a woman? Yeah, that's a great question because that's how I like to think about effect sets. So you would be right if you just knew someone's um, sex focus score, which is the strongest trait. Remember, you'd you'd be right about sixty eight percent of the time. So so about thirty two percent of the time you'd be wrong about their gender, which I think is a pretty substantial frequency to get it wrong. But if you had all 18 of their personality scores where we found a difference between men and women, taking them all together, and we, we actually trained a simple machine learning algorithm to try to pick, predict people's gender, uh, self, self-proclaimed gender, from the, their entire personality scores, well, uh, it's only about 78% accurate. So you're still, you're still wrong pretty often, you're about 22% of the time, even taking all this personality data together. Uh, we thought we thought that was you know pretty interesting overall. Okay, so you're saying even if you factor in all the areas where men and women are different, there's still enough variation that it's just this really does seem to um, question the sort of men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Yes, and, and I'll tell you something else. So we actually so we trained this simple machine learning algorithm. And I said it's about 78 percent accurate, right? Predicting people's um, self-proclaimed gender. But we also did something where we had participants in a study read someone's entire personality score, set of personality scores and try to predict their gender. Guess how accurate that was? How good are people at doing it? 60%. You got it. You nailed it right on the head. Oh, it's nice. Very nicely done. So yeah, people were about 60%. So, so whereas the algorithm, which is specifically trained for this purpose, was about 78%, people were only about 60% accurate. Now, it, you can look at this another way and you could say, okay, we, you could also ask people, here are 18 traits. Which one do you think men are higher on? Which one do you think women are higher on? You know, how accurate do you think people are at doing that? At saying which traits are more male versus female? Well, if there's only, if there's 18 out of 700 where there's any difference, I would imagine people imagine, I would imagine that people think that many traits where men and women are approximately equal, that there's a difference, right? Well, so we actually, we didn't test that. We, we tested the other way. We said, here are 18 where there is difference. Oh. Them. Which one do you think men are higher on? Which one do you think women are higher on? Having done this earlier today, I have to say that I... Well, it's hard because it's hard to separate from stereotype. But like, I predicted, I got all eighteen right. I'm not, I'm, I'm not making that up. And it's impressive. Yeah, it's, it's partly because on something like, I think one of them was like warmth toward others. There is this strong cultural stereotype that women are warmer than men, right? Yes. So, so people on average get about eighty percent of these right. Okay. So, but I think this is really interesting because people have a pretty decent sense of which traits men tend to be higher on, which women tend to be higher on. They're not totally wrong, right? They're got, they get it right about 80% of the time. On the other hand, predicting a particular person's gender from their personality traits, they're much worse at that. They're only right about 60% of the time. So what this, what this suggests to me is that it's not that people are totally wrong ideas about which traits tend to be somewhat more male versus somewhat more female, but they do tend to be really wrong about how, predict, how much predictability there is from this, right? They think that men or women are much more different than they are. Uh, at the end of the day. And, and so one way to look at this question is that we actually looked at how, how often on a given one of these 18 personality traits were women closer to the female average than to the male average. And we found that it was only 61% of the time. And on the other hand, how often are males closer to the male average than the female average on all these 18 traits? It was only 57% of the time. So what this really suggests is that most people really lie near the middle on most personality traits. It makes sense, right? And men and women's averages are just not that different from each other. Um, where you really start to see the biggest differences is in the tails, the extremes. Um, and so if you look at something like compassion, 
where on average women seem to be a little bit more compassionate than men, you start to see really big differences at the left tail. When you say the people who are the least passionate people are least compassionate people in society, that's where you see a huge difference. You find almost no females at that end. So that we thought was super, super interesting. Uh, so, so with this really, what we found is just that you, we literally collect the data, plot the distributions of men and women, and you just look at the distributions. And what you see is that on self-reported personality, if you look at compassion, for example, there's, there's almost no females in the, on the, all the way on the left-hand side, the least compassionate, but there's still some males. And so you get a really extreme gender difference at that left tail. And that would suggest like for, well, I remember you guys mentioned like for the uh, question of why almost all mass shooters are male and, and most murderers are male. Is that the sort of thing where it comes to like really rare outlier behaviors? You'd be concerned about those tales about the people furthest to the left or the right? Yeah. So I should say this is only, you know, this is only a, a speculative theory. Uh, we can't prove it for sure, but it is really suggestive. I think that at the extreme tales of, on you know being selfish, of being uncompassionate, of being violent, <laughs> we find that males are way way like more likely to be at that extreme tail. Even though in the middle they're not that different from uh, from women. So you know if you have a hundred people in a room, uh, most of the males and most of the females in the room are pretty much you know towards the middle on those traits, right? But if you knew someone was like the most violent person in the whole room, there's a pretty good chance that person is going to be male. And so you know if you stack all these traits together, you say who's going to be a violent criminal who, you know, shoots up a room full of people, uh, you know, you stack up all these traits, you know, they're probably going to be very uncompassionate, much more violent, uh, probably much more selfish. Well, then you then it, it starts to make sense with the personality data, because you do find that that's um, very, very male to be at that extreme. And in fact, if you look at prisons, almost all violent criminals are male. Did you guys find um, differences or non-differences that clashed with sort of the existing literature on the subject? Yeah, so um, there were some that, that we, so we, uh, in, in the search for finding these personality traits, we tried to cast a really wide net. We looked at a whole bunch of data sets, we looked at academic papers, and there were some that we just couldn't get a handle on and we didn't include because we, we were unconfident that, we, that they were really showing a male-female difference. And so one of the, the biggest examples of this is the question of, uh, are, are men more interested in things and women more interested in people? Because this is something that, has been claimed in many cases. And, and I'm definitely not willing to say that it's not true, but, but we had trouble replicating it in a really consistent way. And um, so basically when we looked into this question, you know, are, are men more interested in things and women more interested in people, we found some gender differences. For example, on the question, uh, uh, self-reported question, I'm interested in the mechanics of how objects operate. We did find that men tend to agree to that more. Or the question, I have little interest in mechanical things, but people always fascinate me we did find that women tend to agree to that more. But on the other hand, on quite similar questions, we didn't find gender differences. So for example, um, I like to figure out all the social connections when I join a group of people, we found no gender difference. Or uh, I am really interested in how other people's minds work, we found no gender difference. Or I am interested in learning about what other people think and do, we found no gender difference. So we kind of just couldn't tell a coherent story here. It, it really seemed to hinge in exactly how we worded the question. And then we, we tried to actually examine this further by doing some qualitative research where we actually would ask people to explain their answer. And we started to think that maybe what's really going on here is that men do express a stronger interest in mechanical things. But then we were really grappling with, is that really a personality trait? And so we ended up just admitting it because we were unconvinced that it was necessarily a personality trait. Gotcha. So you guys, you found differences, but they were 
it sounds like exceptionally sensitive to the specific wording of the question. Yeah, they were sensitive to the wording. It was unclear how much it really had to do with people versus things. It was seemed to be we were able to replicate it more on just like the things question. You know, men like men are interested in mechan the mechanics of things, and also it just sort of like is that really a personality trait or is that just you know an interest difference? It's it's sort of it's really it was unclear. So we decided to you know we didn't have a clear enough picture on it to include it. Why do you think people are so? This is just one of those areas where where it feels like it's pretty fraught and hard to talk about or study openly. Do you have any sort of thoughts on why why that is? Yeah, I think there's a I think there's different answers to that question sort of societally and then in academia. Um, in I'll start with academia. <laughs> it's a little maybe less sensitive to talk about, which is so in academia a lot of personality research is, it hinges on the big five model of personality, uh, which is that basically says there's five big factors of personality like conscientiousness, openness, extroversion, etc. And that these are sort of the dominant portions of someone's personality. So if you had to explain someone's personality, these would be like the five places you'd start. And the, there's a, a difficulty studying gender differences in personality using this framework, which is that each of these traits, like agreeableness or emotional stability, are so high level that you don't find super big gender differences based on them, because they're sort of mixing together so many smaller traits. And so we think that in academia, it, that this is one reason why they tend to not find very large differences in gender. And so we wanted to actually go go the opposite way and say, let's find, let's. We actually looked for through over seven hundred different questions you could ask people, looking for like what is the single strongest differences of any of the questions that we could find, and starting there because we thought that was a more promising route, because this high level theory would hide all these differences. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. so when you from the zoomed out place you just it's hard to find anything because it's too because it is too zoomed out in other words exactly and then there's some other research that says actually men and women are really different but in order to conclude that it's they sort of like add up all the variation found on any question and i don't necessarily agree with that perspective either because i, I just think it produces a very unnatural hard to interpret kind of score about how different men and women are so my preferred way to look at it is, is the way we did which you said well to what extent can you predict someone's gender from their personality. And that, I think, sort of gives the most intuitive, cleanest answer to the question that we've been able to find. Um, yeah, so that's sort of, the, sort of an academic perspective. And then, you know, if you think about societally, um, I think that a lot of people just have very strong, intuitive theories about gender. And that actually, uh, I'm not exactly sure how they form. Um, one hypothesis is that we tend to notice the outliers much more than people falling near the middle. So it could be, for example, that when people, you know, you think about you meet a male who's like a little bit more compassionate than average, you probably are not even going to notice, right? But if you meet a male who's completely selfish, you know, oh, okay, well, maybe you're going to take notice of that. And, and so, so, you know, one suspicion we have is that um, the way people get sort of these, the, the reason people might be right about like 80% of the time about these gender differences, is maybe they're noticing the outliers and those outliers do give them some information and they kind of just don't notice everyone in the middle, which is most people. But it also, unfortunately, may lead to them greatly exaggerating the size of these effects because the outliers have much bigger effects than you know all those people in the middle that you never notice. That's interesting. So they're they're sort of right because they use this heuristic that um, even if there's just more men at the far tails and they're more noticeable, that nudges people in the right genuine direction, but they sort of overshoot the mark because they're ignoring the people in the middle. That's yeah, that's our speculative hypothesis. You don't notice the people in the middle, so you don't, you know, you don't take them to account properly. Uh, the outliers, yeah, get you the right general direction, but they also greatly exaggerate the differences. So. Do you encounter like 
I mean, there, there's obviously a little bit of snootiness in academia and you guys are doing this. Um, you're doing it in a different way. You're not doing it through the usual peer reviewed channels. A, do you find, have you found that like psychologists will make and others will make a good faith attempt to take you seriously and hear you out? And B, does that sort of put more pressure on you to be higher quality and more rigorous and more transparent? Yeah, so we actually partner with academics um, pretty often. Um, so we have two partnerships with academics going on right now, uh, and I think it can be very symbiotic. Um, we'll, what we'll do, for example, is we'll let um, academic researchers inject code into things we're building anyway and do their own, test their own hypothesis. So I really like that. And we also do sometimes publish our paper, our, our work, but the reality is that it's just for us, that's really not what we're, we're trying to do. We're trying to create something that's valuable to people and get it out there in the world. And so it's just a kind of really different goal set I also find that doing this kind of work tends to push me in sort of a different research process than uh, academics often use. For example, I mentioned we did something like 15 different studies for this gender work. And what I found is that because we're really trying to dig in and like create something that people can use about this topic, it often requires this hyper iterative research where we just, we run a study, we learn something, we, that leads us to a second study, we run that, we learn another thing and we just keep going rather than this idea of like, oh, we come up with a hypothesis and then we build a big study and we test it, right? It's more like we do study after study after study after study. And at the very end, it's great to do a big confirmatory hypothesis, a big confirmatory study. But at that point, we're already actually quite confident in a lot of the answers. It's just, that's just kind of a final check on ourselves. And so for example, in the gender work, we did do a big confirmatory study. Uh, it was pre-registered where we took, uh, we looked, we actually pre-predicted the direction of the 18 different gender and personality traits, and literally every all 18 went the way we expected. That's not such a big surprise because we'd already done you know 14 studies before that. So we, we knew what we were gonna find. Um, but anyway, that's kind of how we think about it. Gotcha. So in other words, there's just, you guys are following many of the same rules and actually partnering with academics. So there's not maybe the divide that I thought there could be. Yeah, but I do think, I do think it pushes us in different uh, focuses in our work and the way we work uh, ends up being quite different. Sure, I wasn't, honey. I know all about your past. Listen to the big shot with his pager on call. You spent most of those nights in my bathroom stall. Yeah, you got a mind, but you left to roll. Mind your own business, boy. How was I to know that he was just a fiend and a no good cheat? Well, it's all in the past, bitch, because now I got it, bitch. Let's talk a little bit about power posing because my my general sense, um, I think most people have heard of power posing, but it's basically this idea uh, first promoted by a, a Harvard professor, Amy Cuddy, and her colleagues that if you, for instance, stand in sort of a Superman pose, like an assertive pose, it will increase certain hormones and give you a sense of power and increase performance. And the the key findings have failed to replicate, which has led some people to describe power posing as more or less debunked. But your findings and others suggest it's a little bit more complicated than that, right? Yes, I think it's a really fascinating case study because the, the original research on power posing had a bunch of, of flaws. And in fact, one of the co-authors even came out and eventually like sort of pointed out those flaws uh, very straightforwardly. 
And so, you know, it's, it's, that's hard to deny that it had those flaws. And, but uh, what happened was there was a TED Talk. I think at the time it was like the second most popular TED Talk. Uh, so it was really, really popular. That was about that research. And my suspicion is that sort of created a bit of a backlash because it's sort of like this low quality research, but it's getting really huge amounts of attention. And, uh, and so people started trying to replicate the results. And the original results had, it, they had a few different outcomes. They were looking at like, if you do a power pose, what is the effect on, uh, I think it was a cortisol level perhaps, um, and some other things, a risk-taking behavior. And basically what they, they found, as I understand it, is they couldn't replicate the sort of cortisol effects or risk-taking behavior effects. And this led to sort of people you know, piling on, basically saying this research is, is junk, power posing doesn't work. But the really fascinating thing to me is if you look at the pre-registered uh, replication studies, if you actually look at the effects on people's reported feelings of power, which to me is the sort of reason you power pose. You don't power pose because it makes you take more risks or you don't power pose because it changes your cortisol. You power pose, if you do it at all, because it makes you feel more powerful or increases your mood. Uh, if you actually look carefully at those pre-registered, so these are pre-registered replications where they had you know, stated in advance, this is what we're going to do. And then they went and did it. Um, you find that two, uh, at least the ones I've seen, two out of the six actually found statistically significant effects on feelings of power. And even six out of six actually had p-values less than 0.33. So they weren't meeting the standard 0.05 cutoff, but they were like at least a little bit pointing in the direction of a real finding, just not very strongly. And so this pattern, you know, two out of six statistically significant, but all kind of at least pointing a little bit towards a real finding is not what you expect if there's no effect. That's just, it's just not what you, that's kind of would be quite surprising to find if there was no effect. Uh, what it suggests to me is actually that it's just a small effect. It's an effect that's too small for most of these studies. So what happens is, you know, once they finds it, one doesn't, once they finds it, one doesn't, because, it, you know, it's just sort of on the, it's just a little bit too small for the sample sizes involved. So we went and ran our own replication, which was really a huge study. I think it was about a thousand people. And we indeed found a, a power posing effect on mood, on like kind of general mood. And we also found that the component of mood that was most strongly impacted was uh, self-reported feeling of power. Um, and, uh, and so that, that kind of led me to conclude that, yeah, you know, probably power posing does increase your mood a little bit on average, and it probably also does increase your feelings of power a little bit on average, but it also probably varies from person to person. So probably some people are more affected than others. I mean, the follow-up question is whether the, that would then directly translate into anything in terms of real world performance, right? Because people, my sense is people who do power posing don't just do it because it feels good. They do it because they were told you know, it would help them in the office, help them get that promotion and so on. Yeah, and I think that's totally unclear. But I think if you, I, I, here's what I suspect, that if you want a very small, easy to get increase in feelings of power, then for some pre percentage of people, power posing will probably give them that. For some other people, it probably won't. And so you could just try it and see if you get that. And then the question is, do you want a small, temporary increase in your feeling of power? And, and what will that do for your life? And that's, I think, very unclear. Um, but I think there are situations where, you know, you're about to go into a meeting, you're right behind the closed door, you're feeling kind of unconfident. Maybe if a power pose does give you a slight boost in your feeling power, maybe that's a good thing. Right. But I think, you know, I, the original claims were way overstated. I think that's, that was a problem. Yeah. I was, I was once at a dinner with a friend uh, and his wife where, you know, she was sort of, um, wasn't, I told her I was writing a book and one of the chapters was on power posing and she's like, frustrated because she'd been doing it and she said you know she felt it worked and i was sort of like i mean whatever the statistics say you're not gonna like hurt yourself by power posing for 30 seconds it could have some effect on some people it sounds like that's sort of what you're saying 
Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, our research found that on average, it, it does have an effect on people's self-reported feelings of power. And that's basically was the conclusion of this meta-analysis that looked at these six pre, uh, pre-registered studies as well. They analyzed them all together, doing a Bayesian analysis, and they concluded there was actually really strong evidence when you take it all together that it, that it does work on feelings of power, which, which I think is uh, pretty interesting. But it also leads to another important question, which is, is this just a placebo effect? Uh, because both in our study and in a number of the, the pre-registered studies, they found that if you control for people, like if you basically remove people who sort of have either heard of power posing or already believe that like your body affects your mood, um, that the effect gets way weaker, basically. And, and it still seems to maybe work a little bit, but it's much weaker effect. And so that leads people to say, well, maybe this is just a placebo effect and that it's all in your head. But I think the really fascinating thing there is like, well, what does it mean in that case to be a placebo effect? Like if it really actually makes you feel more powerful, well, that's really what it's claiming. So that's great. You know, I think if it is a placebo effect that makes you feel more powerful, like if believing you're going to feel more powerful makes you feel more powerful, that's interesting uh, from a theoretical perspective as a mechanism of action, but it doesn't necessarily matter to someone who's just do- doing it before going into a meeting. Right, because you, you you still feel more powerful either way. It doesn't matter what the mechanism is. Exactly, as long as it's real. Like if it was a reporting bias where people just like misreported it, that would be bad. But if it's if it's a true placebo effect where the believing you're going to be more powerful makes you feel more powerful, then it, yeah, it, it works in the practical way that people say. But before I sort of zoom out a little, is there any other, we mentioned um, intrinsic values, gender stuff, power posing. Is there any other research you sort of want to highlight and tell people about? Yeah, yeah. So uh, just a couple more things I think people might find interesting. So I mentioned we run this website, clearthinking.org, and we've got all these free things you can do on there. Um, One of them we just released, I was really excited about, is called Life Changing Questions. And uh, Inc.com actually did a story about it. And there, what we did is we ran a series of studies on open-ended questions to try to figure out which open-ended questions do people find it most valuable to answer. And so we started with a few hundred possible open-ended questions taken from, you know, lists of deep questions and lists of questions that life coaches ask. And we crowds, we actually crowdsourced for something like 25 different people and we brainstormed. And then we, we kind of quickly windowed that down. And then we started running a series of studies to, to where we'd ask people a question and then have them rate, like how valuable was that experience of answering it? And we got it down to about 32 questions that people, that set of questions where people reliably find it um, valuable to answer them. And so we, yeah, we just released it on our website and kind of it's a lot of fun to, to kind of go through them. Can you, can you reveal a couple of them? Yeah, so one of my favorites is what in life gets you very excited? And I've just had actually great experiences asking this, you know, a dinner conversation sometimes and someone's eyes will light up and they'll just talk to you for 10 minutes about the thing that they really care about in life. And, you know, so I really love that one. Um, or another example is if you knew for sure that you were going to die in 10 years, how would you change what you're doing now in your life? And I think that's a really good one because it kind of helps people. So 10 years is long enough. That's not imminent, right? Like you can still accomplish plenty of things in the next 10 years, but it kind of gets people to really refocus on like, what's really important to me? You know, what's the stuff I'm doing that's kind of expendable that I'm not going to feel particularly good about on my deathbed? And what's the stuff that like really matters? It sounds like that's like an important part of your project is getting people. I mean, we're all really busy. We're all really anxious and harried, but you want people to sort of you want to help people step back and figure out what matters to them and what they want to use their lives for. Exactly. Exactly. I view that, you know, so if you think about like holistically the project of trying to improve people's lives, like one really important part of that is helping people figure out what they want and what they care about fundamentally. 
that's not the only thing, then there's other things like making big life decisions. So uh, we actually created a tool called the Decision Advisor. If you're facing a big life decision, you can actually go through this free tool and it helps you think systematically about the decision and avoid common biases that occur during the decision-making process. Um, so that's another example. So it's, you, know, you can think of it, there's all these different kind of sections of improving someone's life and we, we're trying to release tools that kind of hit these different parts of your life, whether it's like making a big decision or figuring out what you value. We actually have a new, a new series of research on habit formation. We're trying to figure out what habit formation techniques get people to actually stick to a habit more reliably. And so we're testing 22 like micro habit interventions uh, we actually ran this month-long study, we recruited hundreds of people trying to form new habits, and they'd be randomized. Each person got would either be in the placebo group or they'd get five out of 22 of these techniques, and then we're studying which ones actually help them succeed in a habit. Uh, what's a potential technique you, you think is promising? So uh, one that's actually looking really promising so far in the research, in our, in our research, is actually getting people to look back to their past habits and what actually helped or hindered them and succeeding at those. So kind of doing uh, this kind of prior analysis based on, on what's worked in their own life. Um, so yeah, it's looking really good so far in the data. We don't have the, we don't have the final results yet though. Gotcha. Um, okay, so so just so everyone's clear on exactly what SparkWave is when they go to check it out, it's basically sort of a platform for anyone who wants to do social science to make it easier or is, it, is that, does that not capture the whole thing? Yeah, that's a good question. So, okay, what, Spark, what SparkWave is, so I'm the founder of SparkWave. We create new software companies to try to help people try to help people and try to solve problems in the world. And so clearthinking.org is like sort of a not-for-profit project we launch where we have a, all these tools I've mentioned that people can use for free. Um, we also have other products that, that we're either created or in the process of creating. And so um, the way that work works is it splits into projects that are specifically applying social science and then projects that are about accelerating social science. So in the applying social science, we've got an app called Uplift, which is uh, the goal of that is to be the best self-help for depression in the world. That's what we're trying to provide. And that's actually, we already released that. It's in the app store. Um, we have another um, application of social science coming out shortly. It's called MindEase. And it's, the idea is to create the best app for helping people manage their own anxiety symptoms. Um, and then we have, uh, we then have the stuff that's about accelerating social science. So then we have Guided Track, which is a, a platform for helping people build complex studies and behavioral interventions. Uh, and then Positively, which is our platform for recruiting people for studies. So, you know, so this is all kind of coming out of our, you can think of it almost like an incubator, but we we build the products ourselves from scratch. And then if they're promising, we recruit CEOs and spin them out into new entities. Gotcha. Okay, so it's very sort of entrepreneurial, trying a lot of different stuff and, and sort of seeing what works. Yeah, yeah, a lot of, a lot of iteration, yeah. What's your uh, best case scenario for how social science evolves and improves over over the next decade? And what do you think sort of the biggest challenges are? Well, you know, the reason I'm so excited about social science is, I, you know, if you think about really what's important, so many of the most important things fall under social science. So, you know, like, how do we make humans happy? How do we help mental health? You know, how do we make people more rational, better decision makers, less biased, and all these things? So my, you know, my be best case scenario for social science is that it really starts to accelerate answering these really big questions. And obviously these are not questions that are gonna be like ever definitively answered in one fell swoop, but the idea is that we, have, that we produce better interventions and get them applied in the world more to help with these many, many problems. And that we're, that's what we're trying to do, we're trying to help, help with that, that problem as well. Um, what I worry about is that I think that the incentive structure can be really problematic in academia, where uh, basically people, there's so much pressure to get published in top journals 
that, you know, in order to get a good career, you have to do that. And then you're kind of buffered around by all these weird incentives. Uh, and so the, the problem with that is that, first of all, um, it's just very, very hard to come up with totally new, novel, interesting hypotheses to get you published. And that creates a, a tremendous pressure to either produce work that's sort of less useful or less interesting, but sort of just minor incremental improvements on, uh, you know, other existing theories, or to produce work that's sort of not as sound and has false positives. And, you know, so the best researcher re resists these forces. They work against these to produce, still produce really good research. But the existence of these kind of uh, these bad incentives is really problematic. And so I worry that, uh, you know, they, these just basically these forces will continue putting their pressure and make it really hard for people to produce really useful work. How do you guys sort of fight back against those bad incentives or, or shield yourselves from them? Yeah, so um, a few things. Well, one is it's really important that we tell our team members when they're doing research that we don't care about the answer they get. What we care about is that they get that they get the truth. And that's just, you know, something we just have to reiterate again and again. Like, we don't care how, we don't care whether you find a difference or don't find a difference. We care that you get, you find out whether there's a difference. And um, that's just sort of us trying to give our own teams the right incentives, uh, which is super, super important. Um, but just uh, more broadly, by building technology that tries to help social science go, like be faster, cheaper, and make it easier to do the more robust stuff, I think that also really helps because, you know, if we can use larger sample sizes. We can, we can run iterative studies where we, you know, do a confirmatory study to check our work because we can do it fast and cheaply. You know, if it, if it was expensive and really time consuming, we couldn't do that. Um, and so that's, I think, a really key element as well. Anything else you want to uh, add or, or anything else I should have asked you? Uh, well, I, I think this is uh, all really interesting. Well, one thing, one thing I, that, that might be interesting to talk about just momentarily is, you know, you mentioned your friend who does power posing and, and feels like it works for her, right? So this actually relates to another topic that I'm really interested in, which is this, I don't know if you saw this, but this recent failed replication of a classic study on the, the, um, the facial feedback hypothesis. Right. This is the idea that if you smile, it will basically make you happier, right? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people conceptualize it that way, like smile, just smiling make you happier. But what's really interesting is that like this classic study on this that, that a lot of people refer to wasn't actually testing that. It was actually testing whether smiling makes you rate jokes as being funnier. Right. And just recently, this big, really big replication, it was like, some, I think it was a huge number of teams across the world trying to replicate it, failed to replicate that classic finding. And this, I think, has led some people to doubt the spatial feedback hypothesis, saying, oh, maybe it's, you know, maybe it doesn't work. Uh, and to me, this is really, really fascinating in terms of just the sociology of, uh, of academia. And the reason I find it so fascinating is, so I have a question for you. Do, you. do you find nails on a chalkboard to be unpleasant? I do. Okay, so let's say a big study came out that showed that, that actually there's no effect of nails on a chalkboard and people finding it unpleasant. What would you say to that? Uh, I would be pretty skeptical of it. Yeah, exactly. That's how exactly how I feel on the the smiling make you feel happier question. For me, I must be way at the tail end because smiling just instantly makes me feel happier, and I could just repeat it again and again. You know, do twenty trials <laughs> on myself of smiling and not smiling, and it's completely convincing. But you're um, pretty you're a pretty happy guy, though. To be fair, I, I am I am a pretty I am a pretty happy person. But uh, my point is just like with nails on a chalkboard, it's like okay, if a big trial showed you the nails on a chalkboard don't make people feel bad, you'd be like, yeah, but. Who do I believe, this abstract study, or I can literally witness it for myself directly through my own experience? And, you know, this kind of goes back almost to, you know, Descartes and, like, you know, how do you know anything? Like, 
the thing that you mo know most directly is literally your own perception of reality, right? Like, um, so I thought this was really funny that people started to, to doubt this, like, this smiling make you happier because it's such a direct, obvious thing for me. And actually, uh, we put together a trial to just try to test this. And indeed, we found that on average, smiling does make people feel happier. Uh, we ran a large study that, that, uh, that replicated the effect. Um, however, what we didn't try to replicate is the original stu classic study of does, does smiling make people rate jokes as funnier? Because I think that's a very indirect way to test that hypothesis. And I'm not sure why one would think that that really is the same thing as smiling make you feel happier. So I just think I find this all very interesting sociologically. Yeah, when I I read some of your um, stuff on that, it was just interesting to me that the, because it's true, the study hadn't measured whether it made people happier. It had measured something pretty different. It's just weird to me how that got translated in sort of the layperson's imagination to experiments testing this thing it didn't actually test. So Yeah, I mean, it's not, and it's just not just uh, lay people. I've, I mean, I've heard at least one professional psychologist also say this, like refer to the study saying, oh, tested uh, smiling and happiness. So I think it's sort of like people, I think it's very easy to kind of flip those things and not realize what it was actually testing. Yeah. Um, well, look, thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. I'm going to spend a lot more time on your sites and I hope my listeners will check them out because it's, it's really interesting what you guys are doing. And was there anything else you wanted to plug or mention before we sign off? Yeah. Thank you so much for, for having me. Um, anyone who's interested, love to have you check out clearthing.org. We've got about 23 free tools you can check out, our intrinsic values test and a lot of other stuff. And then if you want to learn more about us as a whole, check out uh, sparkwave.tech. So dot T-E-C-H and you can learn more about us. So thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. Thanks for coming out. This was great. <laughs>